Well, good morning. It was a fantastic day yesterday. I took my boys, at least two of them, on a bike ride, and uh, it was just a glorious, glorious day. And I thought, Indiana doesn't remember it's winter. This is beautiful. Like, I don't know how that works, but it's great. I, uh, it was amazing because yesterday I was finding myself living out this series. So if you weren't here, we started this series the very first week talking about how <clears throat> all of our lives have a beginning and an end, and it's happening. And that, gi- that end is a gift from God to drive you to remember that this world is not your home. And so in that series, I read, I read a, or in that sermon, I read a verse where I think it was Moses talks about how um, our days are numbered. So uh, teach us to be wise and to number our days. And the whole point of the context of that verse is that each day is a moment that's gone and you can't get it back. Yesterday, my littlest one, he's three, and I had my oldest one who's seven, about to be eight. And uh, he can ride a bike just fine. He can actually do it without training wheels, though he still has the training wheels just in case on a long bike ride. But my little one has just moved up to a tricycle. He went from the the ones where you just pedal with your feet, and it's funny because they look like a frog, but he could actually go pretty fast on those things. Literally would tear through his shoes, brand new shoes in one day. But now we're onto a tricycle. I'm watching him. He's pedaling 10 times for his older brothers, too. And poor little guy is just tired after like a half an hour on this bike ride. But we're already way away from home. We're not close to home. And so I'm behind him trying to pedal. And as long as he goes straight, we're fine. Trying to push him from behind with my bike. But then he starts turning off, and I'm hitting his wheel. I'm like, I guess this is safe. So I'm walking and pushing him with my bike. But what's hilarious is I'm in my mind. I'm like, this moment, am I ever going to remember this moment? Like, this is such a hilarious, glorious, just fun, beautiful day outside kind of moment. And it's going to slip through my fingers. And given my brain, I'm not going to remember it more than another year or two. And there are so many moments like that in my kids' lives. Do you have those? Do you remember, like, looking back, and you're like, what in the world? But see, this is important. So... Throughout your life, you're going to be given what I would call marker moments. Maybe it's the time you came to faith that Jesus had got baptized, or maybe it was the time you got married. There are these critical moments in life. There are going to be good moments, <clears throat> and there's going to be bad moments. Am I right? And my sister once told me this when we were young. I don't know where she got this wisdom from, but I think I was probably 10. She was maybe 12 or 13 in that ballpark. And she said, Matt, have you ever noticed over our years of life, because we'd lived so many years, she says, have you ever noticed you really only remember the really good and the really bad? So what I started doing as a kid, we'd be riding down the road, I'd be in the car like with my dad, and I would literally think to myself, I'm going to remember this moment forever just so I can prove my sister wrong. I remember doing it, but I don't remember anything about the moment. I just remember thinking that, because what brother doesn't love for a sister to be wrong? Okay, so the purpose of this is your life is going to be filled with high highs. And your life is going to be filled with low lows. You've been there. You've had a couple of those. And the question, whether you're on a high or on a low or the journey in between, do you still believe that God is good? Because i got to tell you, it's really easy at the high, Right? It's really hard at the low. I've actually found at the lowest of the low, when you hit what is so-called rock bottom, that sometimes it's actually easier to remember again the Lord is good because you think, it can't get any worse than this. i got nowhere to go but up. But it's actually the journey down. And sometimes the journey up, depending on how long it takes, is so painful. Now, if you're sitting here and everything I'm saying doesn't connect to you yet, that's because you've only experienced the highs. And when the lows come, this question is one you need to answer today. Today. 
Will I trust God at the highest of highs, the lowest of lows, and everything in between? Will I absolutely commit in my heart and in my life, in my pursuit of God, that I will believe he is good no matter the journey? And it's an important question, though a hard one. In fact, this will actually be the entire theme of our post-Easter series, which is important because that's right after I come back off sabbatical. Rhett's like, Matt, I'm going to go ahead and plan this series like you've said it, but realize you've been out 60 days reading and praying and studying, and I'm going to hold it all loosely and expect that. I said, I'm sticking with it because this is like the theme that God has been teaching me about over the last few years. Like, how do you stay consistent with God as you're pressing forward in life through the highs, through the lows, and the in-betweens? What does it mean to actually trust him that he is good no matter what you are facing? Well, today I want to take you to a text. And if I do any justice at all to this text, I hope I will give you a little bit, an element of something to hang on to. But I've just told you the entire message in a nutshell. But what I want to do is talk to you now about how do you live, how do you live in that season, whether it's a good one or a bad one, how do you still live in that season as if God is good? So go with me now to a book you maybe have never even picked up before, the book of Habakkuk. You're like a what? Habakkuk. And you might not know how to find it, and that's okay. There's no judgment there. It'll be on the screen, or you can download our app, and the verses will be in there. And while you're turning there to Habakkuk chapter 3, it's a three-chapter book. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me give you a little context. So Habakkuk is a minor prophet. That's what we call him. He's not one of the major prophets like an Isaiah or a Daniel. Minor prophet. He only gets three chapters. That's it. Not only that, but he's writing to a group of Israelites. Now, you need to know this. And we're going to look at this later, so I'm giving you a foretaste or a little foreshadow. <clears throat> In the Old Testament, God made a covenant with the people. Now, covenant is different than a contract because a covenant is based on God. A contract is based off two separate parties. Now, the difference is this. In a contract, I do my part, you do your part, and then that's it. So there's, that's the contract is made. If you don't do your part or if I don't do my part, the contract is over. In a covenant, it's basically secured. The covenant is secured in the one who the covenant is being created upon, and that would be God. So the covenant is effective even when you fail. But in the covenant... God says, if you do this, I will bless you. Now, here's how that literally looks. God says, if you obey all my laws, all my decrees, and all my regulations, I will bless you. You will be blessed among all the nations. However, the other side of that, if you fail to obey my laws, my decrees, my regulations, if you turn your hearts towards these foreign idols, then I will actually punish you. Some translations might even say curse you, discipline you. Well, Habakkuk is writing to a people who refused to turn to the Lord. They refused, even though God in his mercy kept saying, come back, come back, come back. That's where he got his name, Habakkuk, come back. Just kidding, I made that up. Anyway, I just now made that up too. He's saying, come back, and yet they don't. And now, catch this, Habakkuk is writing about the terrible things that have happened and will happen. Habakkuk is a good man. This is huge for you. Whenever your low, low comes, the low, low comes for two major reasons. You might even argue three, but two are kind of lumped together. Number one, somebody else sinned. Number two, you sinned. Habakkuk is a prophet of God. He's a good man. He actually fulfilled the covenant for God. But yet, Habakkuk lives among a people who did not. 
And so Habakkuk suffers the low lows along with everyone else. And the reason I say there's two groups there is because the reality is it may be one or two people. It may be your spouse. It may be your child. It may be your parent. It may be your boss. I mean, think about how many people suffered as a byproduct of Enron or, or Madoff. It was one person but it had significant impact. But in this situation, we're not talking one person. We're talking about such a significant portion of Israel would refuse to return to the Lord that those who were the remnant, the righteous who were left in Israel suffered the consequences as well. This is terrifying, by the way, because no matter what nation you're a part of, at any moment should God decide to bring about justice in some way or another, realize we will all be a part of the punishment, whatever that is. But I read all of this. I say all of this as set up to get us to Habakkuk. Now, if I don't make sense of some of this, it won't make sense to you. So stick with me. Go to chapter 3, verse 17 now. It says this. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty. Now, we're just going to stop because the next part begins a new verse. Just see this for a moment. This is depressing if you understand what he's saying. God told the people, if you follow me, I'll bless you. The people did it for a while, then they turned away. They started worshiping the foreign idols. And by the way, as a byproduct of that, their morals fell into the, the, the pot. I mean, just literally a terrible situation. And they've started to get greedy and evil, literally started sacrificing their own children to false gods. I mean, it was evil, evil stuff going on. We're not just talking like God got jealous. Yes, God got jealous, and for very good reason, got jealous for his people. And so the punishment comes, and he's describing the punishment and what he's just described here is complete and total economic failure. While they did have things like money or currency in that day, the majority of their investment, if you're into investments, the majority of their portfolio, if not everything in their portfolio, was these things. The fig trees have no blossoms. There are no grapes on the vines. And the olive crop fails. These were the finest of the finest, the best of the best. And the fields lie empty and barren. That would have covered everything else like wheat and, and all their other eats. So not only do we not have the daily provision for food, we also have none of the finer things anymore. Can anybody ever relate? Has this ever happened to you? You're like, I didn't know there was a passage in the Bible to talk about that season in my life. But it gets worse because even though all that's gone bad, but there's also no flocks, they're dying in the field, and the cattle barns are empty. This is as bad as it can get. This is economic failure at its worst. The people are now suffering and oppressed. And you know what happens now for these people? They're going to have to sell themselves to feed their families. So if you don't know the history of Israel... God raised up Abraham and said, I'm going to make you the father of many. And eventually, if you follow that down, God did that. But it wasn't very long in Abraham's story that his descendants ended up in Egypt. At first, very blessed because he made Joseph uh, the, this very well-prominent man in Egypt. But over time, as evil rulers came into power, what happened in Egypt was they became slaves unbelievably oppressed slaves. So when God goes into the book of Exodus and rescues them through Moses, that's the story there, he tells them this promise, this covenant. I'm going to take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. Man, if you're a slave, that sounds fantastic. 
And like you may think, well, big deal, milk and honey, I'll go buy that for five bucks at the store. They're slaves. They're slaves who do back-breaking work from morning until night. And God's saying, I'm going to take you into a land that produces everything for you. You're going to have the finest, the sweetest things of life. And all you need to do is follow me, trust me, and obey me, and I'll make sure you keep having it. That was the high, high. It happened for a season. And then the low, low came. And now Habakkuk is struggling. In your pursuit of God, tell me this. In your pursuit of God, are you faithful to God and trusting of God as long as he does what you want him to do? Or are you faithful to God and trusting to God no matter what he's doing or why he's doing it? See, if you never resolve this question in your heart, there's a good chance that you're going to become uh, one of the seeds that Jesus talks about in the parable of these four seeds that fall on different soils. There's a good chance you're going to become one of those seeds that when times get hard or Satan comes and tempts you or the world brings you something that looks better than Jesus, you're going to go after one of them. Realize, of the four seeds, only one type of seed goes deep and stays connected. And it doesn't matter the great opportunities that come, and it doesn't matter the great pain or failure that comes. No matter what, that seed stays strong. The question is, you've got to resolve this issue in your heart up front. Because you will have a low low. A diagnosis is going to come along for you or a family member. A spouse is going to give you information you never thought would be true. A child is going to rebel. Somebody is going to cheat you or hurt you. You're going to get fired. The economy is going to blow up. We're going to end up with some presidents. Okay, we'll move on. And when it comes, will you believe? Verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk, how can you possibly say that here and now of all times? How? You literally lost everything. You're going to end up as slaves in an evil nation again. How can you still worship God? Verse 19. Because the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer. able to tread upon the heights. Wait a minute. Habakkuk, you mean in spite of the low, low, you're hanging on to the fact that you believe one day there will be a high, high again. How's that possible, Habakkuk? Well, what I want to do is, 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 is 
Go backwards to then go forward to then go backward to go forward. It's going to be one of those kind of confusing things. But maybe better understanding of this text would come if you were to understand the context whereby this kind of passage is illuminated. And I want to take you there for a moment. See, part of what Habakkuk is doing in chapter 3, if you read the entire thing, is Habakkuk keeps looking backward at the exodus. He keeps looking back in time. He's looking back to that place where God redeemed and restored and God came in like a storm and he overwhelmed and he overpowered the Israelites. And what Habakkuk is doing is he's reminding himself of who God is. I may be in the midst of the most painful and terrible thing that I've ever gone through, but I'm looking back and I'm remembering your goodness. I remember when you did this and those marker moments in your life are so important, but they're not just in your life. They're in the life of the church, the life of every believer in history, going all the way back to the book of Genesis. The more you familiarize yourself with this unbelievable book, the more hope you have in hard seasons because you see the hand of the Lord. You begin to look back and go, okay, I know at some point this high, high will be followed by a low, low, but I know this low, low will at some point be followed by a high, high. Habakkuk is reminding himself of the goodness of the Lord. That's part of actually the pain of the text. Let me show it to you for just a moment. Turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. You're like, the what? Yeah, I know. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The fifth book of what we call the Torah. It's the fifth book of the Bible. Genesis chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 26. If you don't know how to find it, don't stress about it. It'll be on the screen. Let me read some of this, all right? And, and stick with me. Deuteronomy 26, verse 1. God tells the Israelites... When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you as a special possession and you have conquered it and settled there, put some of the first produce from each crop you harvest into a basket and bring it to the designated place of worship, the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored. Go to the priest in charge at that time and say to him, with this gift I acknowledge to the Lord your God that I have entered the land that he swore to our ancestors he would give us. The priest will then take the basket from your hand and set it before the altar of the Lord your God. And you're like, what in the world does this have to do with Habakkuk? Everything. This is exactly what Habakkuk is looking back to. So this particular passage is given by Moses to the people. Moses goes up and for 40 days and 40 nights he doesn't eat and he doesn't drink and he meets with God and his face is literally illuminated by the presence of God and he comes down the mountain and when he comes down the mountain he gives um, to the people what God has been telling him. And then he goes in the tent of meeting and he meets with God again and he comes back to the people and he tells them. And this is the, one of the things he says. One day you're going to be in a special land, the promised land and it's going to flow with milk and honey, it's going to be glorious. It's not like that slave land. It's not like this land in between, this desert land you've been wandering in. No, this land, it's going to be glorious. When you get there, it's going to be amazing. You just wait. You just wait till you get there. But when you get there, I don't want you to forget how you got there. And so when the land in the very first year produces its crops, as everything's just kind of coming up and you're harvesting, you're not going to know how much is coming in yet. You're not going to know what the end result is. I just want you to go and gather up the very first fruits of what the Lord has given you. And I want you to bring it to the priest. And I want you to offer it to him there. Because I want you to remember, God is the one who took care of you the first time. God is the one who's providing for you now. And God is the one who will take care of you then. See, in America, we have this false dichotomy, this false belief, 
We're saved by grace through faith, but I got to work hard. And it gets in the way of our faith all the time. We live in a land of such abundance, we really don't really, most of us are our exceptions, so I mean no offense to you, we really don't know what it means to depend on the Lord for our daily bread, to not literally know where the next meal is going to come from. But God had a system built in for the Israelites to constantly remind them. And see, just to kind of help you with this process this a little bit, you do realize that everything you have is from the Lord, right? You may look back, and again, especially if you're new with this, you may look back and say, no, no, you understand, I worked really hard, I I went to school, I went to school again, I went to school again, you know, I got all these degrees, you know, I worked really hard, I got this job, I put on all these hours, I did it. Well, nobody's saying you didn't work at all those things, but you do realize, like, if you were born, say, to a a very poor family in the middle of Africa, you would have never had those opportunities. Like, you were literally placed in this amazing culture in this amazing country, with these amazing resources, you're going to take credit for that? Or do you just stop and say, you put us in this spacious land flowing with milk and honey? Thank you, God, for all that you've done. Now, the purpose of the first fruits in the life of the Israelite was that they would have to give to the Lord the very first without knowing what the end result is. What we tend to give to the Lord is what we have left over. Okay, God, so after I pay my house and after I pay my car and after I do all these things, I'll see what I have left and then you can have a portion of that. And God says, no, I'm going to have you start with the first and then just trust me with the rest. All of Scripture is set up to build a deeper trust of you in your heavenly Father. Did you know that? Why do we take a Sabbath day? Why does Chick-fil-A close on Sunday? (laughs) Chick-fil-A. <laughs> it, t- it literally took me years. I would be like, what do you want today? I want Chick-fil-A. It's Sunday. Dang it! <laughs> you need to find out that recipe. Make it at home. Why? Because God wants you to remember he gave you everything you have. But now connect the dot here, okay? Because Habakkuk is looking back. And he's lamenting. While he also looks forward and celebrates, but let's stay in the lament for a moment. So now what? God, we can't bring you the first fruits. There's no fruit. We can't even sacrifice for our sins. The animals are all dead and gone. How could there be anything to rejoice in? Verse 5. You must then say in the presence of the Lord your God. My ancestor Jacob was a wandering Aramean who went to live as a foreigner in Egypt. His family arrived few in number, but in Egypt they became a large and mighty nation. When the Egyptians oppressed and humiliated us by making us their slaves, we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. We heard, he heard, sorry, our cries and saw our hardship, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand, a powerful arm, with overwhelming terror, and with miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land flowing with milk and honey. Now the Lord, oh Lord, I have brought you the first portion of the harvest you have given me from the ground. Then place the produce before the Lord your God, and you bow down to the ground and worship before him. 
afterward you may go and celebrate because of all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. Remember to include the Levites and the foreigners living among you in the celebration. How can Habakkuk look back to a day like this where God is saying, I want you to remember. Remember what God did. Remember he made your people grow and expand. Remember he made you numerous, but then remember you ended up as slaves. High, high, low, low. Remember? But then remember God's not done with you yet because he's going to take you into the promised land. And there you're going to find you're going to live in abundance. You're going to have so much. High, high. And when you're in that land, I want you to remember. Celebrate. Celebrate. But that's exactly what Habakkuk did in chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. He's looking back to that day and he's still celebrating. How is that even possible? It's possible because Habakkuk can look backward and see the goodness of the Lord, but he can also look forward and see the goodness of the Lord. And here's what I mean by that. So, Right now, I've got one reading plan for this men's group I lead, and I've got another reading plan for, this, uh, for the elders that I'm reading through. And then I've always got sermon prep. So sometimes I read things, and I don't remember where they came from. I just remember reading them. But I think it was in the book of Luke. Jesus actually rebukes the Pharisees. And he says to them, see, you know what your problem is? By the way, but Jesus says that. It's never going to be good. Like your wife says it, and you're like, yeah, bring it. You're, Jesus says it, you're like, uh-oh. Jesus says, you know what your problem is? You don't realize that everything written in here is actually about me. You actually miss the focus that everything was pointing to me. Habakkuk in chapter 3 can look back and say, God, I remember when you did that. I remember when you did that. I remember when you did that. So even though I'm suffering in the most terrible of ways, I know you're not done yet. Here's how I know. There's still a Messiah to be. And see, we stand at a point in history, we're way past Habakkuk, well beyond Habakkuk. But we look back and we go, but I remember when you did that in the Exodus. I remember when you did that in Israel. I remember when you sent Jesus. And I remember when he died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he was cut off like the people of Israel. He literally died naked. I don't know if you know that. Hanging on a cross. Having lost every physical possession he owns, and eventually his life. But before his life was taken away from him, he lost his heavenly father. And if you've never studied the scriptures, then you don't understand how terrible that was. Jesus has never been separated from the father. Ever. In the history of ever. More than the pain and the suffering of the cross, what the cross meant was that Jesus became sin, who knew no sin, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. And what that means is that while Jesus is hanging there, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For a brief moment in time, as Jesus carried the weight of all of our sin, he was separated from his father. It didn't last long. But in the same way that Jesus could look forward to a resurrection, you too can look forward to a resurrection. In the same way Habakkuk could look backward to the saving of the Israelites in Exodus, can look forward to the redemption that came in the Messiah, you at a different point in time can look backward to the redemption that came to the Messiah and look forward to the return one day of the Messiah. And you can know whether you're at a high or you're at a low or somewhere in between headed towards the other, God is not done with your story yet. He's still writing pieces of it. And I can't promise you there won't be pain and suffering on the way there. But I can promise you, but I can give you a guarantee, 
Because if you hold on to Jesus, it'll all be worth it in the end. So we live like Habakkuk in this world. I keep saying this throughout this series. We live in the land of the already and the what? Good, 10 of you are listening. Okay, we live in the land of the already and the not yet. And what that means is this. If you have Jesus Christ, then you are saved, you are redeemed, and your salvation is secure in what he did on the cross. Nobody can snatch you from his hand. The worst they could do is take your life. However, we live in the land of the not yet. Because while you live here, heaven is not quite here yet, is it? I mean, the church is the kingdom of God on earth, but it's not all the way here yet, is it? Jesus is reigning from heaven, but there's still evil on this earth, right? So you live in the land of the already and the not yet. You are a foreigner. We talked about this last week. An exile, a traveler, passing through one world and heading on to the next world. But what we have to do is we have to learn what to do in this world. Through the highs, through the lows, through the land between. How do we do this? How do we live this life? And I actually find it right there in Deuteronomy chapter 26. Turn with me. Deuteronomy chapter 26. Look at verse 12. Every third year, you must offer a special tithe of your crops. In this year of the special tithe, you must give your tithes to the Levites, the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows, so that they will have enough to eat in your towns. Then you must declare in the presence of the Lord your God, I have taken the sacred gift from my house, and I have given it to the Levites, the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows, just as you commanded me. I have not violated or forgotten any of your commands. I have not eaten any of it while in mourning. I have not handled it while I was ceremonially unclean, and I have not offered it to any of the dead. I have obeyed the Lord my God and have done everything you commanded me. Now look down from your holy dwelling place in heaven and bless your people Israel and the land you swore to our ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and bunnies or something similar. Just making sure you're paying attention. And apparently you're not. So you're like, what is all this Deuteronomy Old Testament gobbledygook? I want you to go back with me. Take a look with me now right now. Verse 13. Verse 13. <clears throat> you're going to literally go into the presence of God. You're going to bring every third year a special tithe from everything the Lord has given you. You're like, God, you keep asking me to give more, but stick with why. See, as the Israelites are entering the promised land, God doesn't want them to forget, as I've been telling you, I did this for you. I saved you. I bought you. I redeemed you. I gave you a future and a hope. I did this, but I did this. So that when you were blessed, you would remember that through you, I was being a blessing. Do you realize the gift of the high, high? So that in your celebration and abundance, you can pour into others in their low, low. The whole reason that God has gifted you is for the purpose of being like him on this earth. He's the one who gave, so he says, give freely. He's the one who modeled that by sending his one and only son to die and literally give up everything. This is his hope for you. Now, this is amazing because what he does here in this little passage, he actually says this phrase twice, if you caught that. The Levites, the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows. And I'll go through that quickly. The Levites are the priests. They aren't given land. They can't work the land. So they are 
counting on everybody else's blessing. This is part of the sorrow of Habakkuk. How are the Levites going to survive? I mean, nobody else can survive. They got nothing. How can they survive? But beyond that, the foreigners. See, part of the story, God always made a way for people who were paying attention. Egyptians who were not a part of the people of God, who saw the hand of God and said, I don't know what's going on, but that God more powerful than these false Egyptian gods, I'm going to follow him. If they wanted to come along, they could not own land in the promised land, but they could tag along and God make special provision to care for them. Now, we live in a different day. We're no longer the Israelites. We are the body of Christ. But what's going on here is this would be the poor among us, those who are oppressed and stuck and have no option on their own. I can't remember if I said this in a previous sermon, but recently listened to a TED Talk, and this lady gave a great talk, and she said, do you know as I travel to foreign countries and I meet really poor people and I ask them, what is it you need? They all tell me the one thing none of us in America would say. They say, bureaucracy. And we're like, who in the world wants red tape? And her point was, if you have land and you work your tail end off for that land, but you don't own it, and at any time somebody could come and take it from you, it creates no desire to work. And then he says, the orphans and the widows. See, in this culture, it was a male-centric culture. The men worked their tail ends off to make ends meet, to provide. If you were an orphan, you had no parents. If you were a widow, you had no husband. You were destitute and broken and desperate. And God says, every third year, I want you to take a special offering just for them. Just for them. But that means I'm going to have to give more out of my own family's junk. Yep. Why? Because I'm going to provide. You're going to be blessed to be a blessing. Now, stick with me here. I wish I had another hour. I say that every week, but I don't. God has been wrecking me lately. Um, And I know it's all about the sabbatical. So in case you don't know, it's my last Sunday before I, I disappear for six days and come back. I am coming back. Take a deep breath. I'll be back here to preach on Easter Sunday. Pray for me. Part of what's happened um, over the last couple of years is I just got tired. I got worn down, okay? Um, I gave more energy to things that didn't need me and less energy to things that did. And as a byproduct of that, um, my heart wasn't always where I needed it to be. And ever since about December, when I started really receiving this sabbatical as a blessing, <laughs> not a stressing, my heart started to shift focus to, okay, what am I going to do to maximize that time? I wish I had the ability to tell you more stories now. I will much throughout the rest of this year. But through a crazy set of God circumstances, um, on my sabbatical, I'm traveling to one of my friends who's a missionary at an orphanage. And I, if you don't have to come to Kingsway long before you realize that I have a, a serious heart for the orphan. But as my heart has got tired, um, I started to question why I was doing what I was doing. And I knew that God needed to seize the sabbatical to replant in me the reason why I do what I do. And so I started talking to my friend, and it's all come together in like two weeks. It's like crazy, this thing that's happening. But as I'm talking to my friend in prep of going, um, he has a family of special needs. His oldest son is, is, I'll leave that story private, but he's got pretty severe special needs. And his second son has pretty severe emotional needs. And then he has a little girl. And they packed up their whole family and moved to a foreign country. And when they got into this foreign country, they work at an orphanage. And as I started talking to my friend, something started coming alive in me. 
I started planning this trip down there, and now I know it's not just a trip going down there. God's taking me down there to remind me of some things. But don't glorify this for a minute. My friend said yesterday on the phone, he said, Matt, you go to our website, it's all a facade. (laughs) We got all the pictures of the smiling kids. They're not smiling kids. We have a few siblings in our home, and um, their parents would produce coca plant for drug dealers. And they decided one day they weren't going to do it anymore. And they put a hit out on the whole family. And in front of them, their mom and their dad and one of their siblings was murdered. They said, when these kids, they brought the kids in our home to hide them from the drug dealers. And when we opened the file, um, there's a picture of their brother shot and killed and blood pouring into the gutter. I said, how did you, how do you handle that? What are you going to do? And he told me about another little girl whose brother uh, doused her in gasoline and set her on fire. She's got burns all over her arms and part of her back, he said. And he went through just some different kids in the homes and the things they're struggling with. And the more he talked, the more I heard the angst and the sorrow and the depression in his life. One of the things it did, guys, is it gave me perspective about how blessed we are. There's no no guilt in that. It just gave me perspective. The other thing it did, and this may sound crazy, is it made me come alive. I don't know why. Because I'm sick and demented, I guess. Not because I, I want these kids to suffer. It just reminded me of what I do, what I do. And my friend said on the phone yesterday, He said, I just want you to know our previous conversation, what it did for me. You told me about what your elders are doing and some of the things that you're doing and some of the things that God has already revealed to you in the last three or four weeks. He goes, man, it was such an encouragement to me. And something came alive in me when my friend said, that was such an encouragement to me. Because I don't know about you, but a long time ago, I told the Lord, you can have this life. You can do whatever you want with this body, with this heart, with this, with this life. You do whatever you want with it. I'll follow you wherever you tell me to go. I just ask that you go with me because I can't go it alone. But I made a commitment to God. I just want to spend my life pouring into others who have been stripped of the pride of this world. They've been uh, broken and battered and beat down and bruised, and they're lost and they're hurting and they're lonely. And about five or six years ago, it dawned on me that I wasn't a young pup in ministry anymore, that I was somewhere in that middle ground. I'm not ready to say the, the height of the age thing, <laughs> only 40. But it dawned on me that God has placed me in a unique position now to start pouring into younger ministers and younger pastors and younger leaders. And something alive happened as I'm going, I'm going down there and I'm going to inflate the tires of my friend whose tread has worn out. He's exhausted. He's depleted. And there's something about doing the reason that God gave you the blessings you gave you that makes you come alive. It makes you find your purpose. You want to talk about the pursuit of happiness? You want to know what makes you come alive? It's right in the Bible. Take a look with me. Proverbs chapter 11, verses 24 and 25. Just take a look. Give freely and become more, give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. Like that's right out of the Bible. You're like, that doesn't make sense. I know. It's because you're thinking like a human. You're not thinking like God. But then he says, verse 25, the generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves, what? Be refreshed. Do you know how you get out of a low, low? 
You give and you celebrate your way out. In the midst of a season where you feel like I've got nothing to offer, you give it anyway. And you celebrate that God's not done with your story. Church, are you with me? Because I believe, and this is what my friend said to me, I believe that God has a work to do in our community through this church. My friend said, Matt, we're not just trying to help kids. We're trying to change an entire culture here. He's in a foreign country. We're trying to change an entire culture. He said, nobody loves these orphans. They don't want anything to do with them. They don't even acknowledge they exist. He said, I literally am trying to get these kids connected to the local church. And so I met with the pastors and I prepped them. Okay, on this Sunday, I'm going to come with my family, with these particular kids. We're going to connect these kids to your church. When they come, you got to talk to them. you got to get down on their level and look them in the eye and love them. you got to acknowledge that they're there and actually care that they're there and be thankful that they showed up to experience the gospel among you. So we went with a couple of the kids, and one of the Sundays he got there, and he was all excited. He prepped the pastor. Everything was ready. The church was going to meet these kids and love on them, and then they'd be able to go and take some other kids to another church. And on that first Sunday, the pastor had him stand, his wife stand, his three kids stand, and they welcomed him, and he left the orphan sitting there, and he wouldn't acknowledge him. He said, man, how am I supposed to show these kids the love of Christ when the church shuns them? I don't know the answer to that one yet. But I'm beyond my knees lifting up my friend in prayer and down there inflating some tires. And here's the last thing. Here's the thing that God said to me recently. I know I'm doing a lot of God said to me, God said to me stuff, but this is what God said to me lately. He said, Matt, Who is the people in your community that are those orphans here? Who are the people in your community that nobody wants to acknowledge, nobody wants to help, and nobody knows what to do with? Who are the people that if you were to radically invite them to your church, Kingsway would get uncomfortable they're here? Because I know what exists in the hearts of men and women, and it's usually pretty dark. We tend to gravitate towards easy and comfortable Instead of the sense of adventure that God placed deep in our hearts, the sense of the uncontrollable and the wild, but this dependence upon God. And if you want to pray for anything on my sabbatical, pray that God reminds me again why I do what I do and gives me a passion and a vision for what we can do to join him in this community. But here's the question for you now. What are you doing to partner with God in blessing his creation. Because I promise you this, whether it's time or it's talents or it's treasure, you can't give enough of it. In fact, Jesus says, and I'll end here in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, he says this, give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together, just to make room for more. I don't know about you, but I used to do it with my Slurpees at 7-Eleven. Literally, I'd sit there for 20 minutes packing it down and then putting more in. That's what Jesus is saying. You go ahead. You're going to give, you're going to put this in God's hands. You're going to give generously. You're just going to shake it down. You're going to pack it together like a good Slurpee, and you're going to put more in. You're going to keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, and then you're just going to drink in the goodness. Man, why didn't they have Slurpees back then? Jesus would have said that. It's going to run over and pour into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount that you get back. I don't believe, guys, that God's talking about a bank account. 
You write the church a million-dollar check. If you can, I want to talk. Um, I have one more day for my sabbatical. Lunch tomorrow. It's on me. I don't believe that God's saying if you give a million, he's going to give you two million back. He might, and in some cases he does. What I do believe God is saying is you can't outgive God. And the blessing you're looking for, it comes through understanding your father's heart. You become more like him and just watch what he does in you. With that, what I want to ask you to do right now is spend some time in communion with your heavenly father. And if there's something in this message that struck you, encouraged you, challenged you, offended you, man, take all of that to him right now and just say, Father, give me your heart. Let me pray over you. Father in heaven, Lord, I want to be like Habakkuk. No matter what's going on in our lives, God, we can look forward to the future day the day when all things are redeemed and restored and all of a sudden you wipe all tears from your eyes. But God, we live in the land of the already and the not yet. Heaven is ours completely and fully right here, right now. And yet, God, we live in this world where sin constantly tempts us and ruins the lives of everybody we love. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus, our Redeemer, our King, the one who conquered death and sin. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit who gives us the power to be conformed into the likeness of your Son. And God, I pray for us. I pray for us as a church. God, as I'm off on sabbatical fasting and praying and studying and reading and, and hiking and talking to you, God, I pray you'd grow this church. I pray I'd be blown away when I come back on Easter Sunday by all the stories of the magnitude of what you have done in my absence. Father, make us more like Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray.